This episode of Energy Sense is brought to you by IHS Markets Financial and Capital Markets Energy Advisory Group. Our team of experts provides the investment community with actionable insight and integrated thought leadership that identify the trends and trend makers of global energy markets. Solutions cover the full energy and natural resources sector, from traditional fossil fuels to emerging clean tech ideas and supply chains, and are available via recurring reports, webinars, robust data sets, and personal engagements with experts. All right, welcome back to Energy Sense, an IHS market podcast covering all things that sit on the intersection of energy and finance. This is your host, Hill Vaden, and I'm here today with Kevin Byrne and Raul LeBlanc, both of whom join me from Canada on a much cooler day than it is here in Houston. Raul, Kevin, how are you all? Oh, oh <laughs> it's negative 25 with the wind chill here. Celsius. Celsius. Uh, it's, it's, it's about the same. They almost oh, merge. Yeah. Yeah, only 15 more degrees and we're a disaster. I know. We'll, be, we'll be minus four. That's, that was, a, that was always the Sakhalin, the, 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 the temperature in Sakhalin was always the same. On, on I've never been to Sakhalin, but I remember somebody showing that as like, it's so cold in Sakhalin, you only need one thermometer. <laughs> so, well, it's 75 here in Houston, so it's always... Uh, much warmer and humid. All right. Well, we wanted to talk today about emissions, which is a huge topic uh, across the energy industry and across uh, kind of just all industries at the moment. And so we were going to try and keep it as, uh, I think, simple as possible and narrow as possible, really looking at upstream's role in the emissions conversation on the back of what would have been a lot of announcements over the past year. And I think most recently was Exxon's announcement last week um, with some of its ambition to reduce emissions uh, intensity or emissions and emissions intensity, I guess, both in the Permian and its larger portfolio. So, so before we get into to some of the, I guess, some of our thoughts on the overall process and what this means in the grand scheme of things, I'd like to start just definitionally because that there's there's a lot of detail here that it adds to the complexity. And, and Kevin, if you could, the, the the focus from what I see from upstream specifically seems to be around scope one and scope two emissions more so than scope three. Could, could you help explain the, the difference in those three to, to our listeners? Sure. So th- this is really these definitions really apply to I'd say your your sphere of influence really, um, and your impact. <clears throat> so scope one emissions, which I think where the industry started from a couple of years ago, that was the principal conversation. Really is about um, emi- you know greenhouse gas emissions that are controlled or owned by by an entity or an asset. You can think about literally putting up a physical fence around an asset. So everything that you burn within that perimeter that or that results in greenhouse gas emissions would be your scope one emissions. Scope two emissions is kind of like, well, you know, I can always plug in certain things. I can run a power line across that fence and that that emission will occur elsewhere. But, you know, people have realized, you know, that's kind of yet exporting emissions. So we need to include that that broader impact. Um, there's a third third definition with scope three, which is really about everything else that occurs around that facility. So you can think of that facility would be buying certain feedstocks coming into it. They would be exporting certain products to the market. The impact uh, associated with the energy and then the emissions associated with those feedstocks going in, you need to consider those your scope three. 
and the products that come out. You can think about a refinery producing a gasoline that's burnt. The burning of that gasoline in a car is not near that facility, but uh, it is occurring and that would be part of your scope three. So everything around that physical facility, but isn't directly happening or isn't powering the facility directly is best is a good way to think about it. There is a third definition, which is product lifecycle emissions, slightly different. This is about the emissions associated with a particular product. So you can think about it, you know, you pick up a, a food container or a pop can on the counter and it has a calorie count. It's a similar sort of concept that's what's the greenhouse gas impact associated with that product being produced. So everything from the extraction to the transportation to the refinery of that specific product. So it's not the emissions that occur in the refinery, but the emissions that occur to result in, if you think about gasoline, to produce the gasoline. Yeah, and that's an okay. interesting deal when you think about that. It's called life cycle analysis, and it took me a long time for for Kevin to get this across to me. But you know, it's it's interesting. So if you want to know the life cycle uh, analysis or or carbon footprint, if you will, sometimes people call it of you know the gallon of gasoline. Well, the gallon of gasoline that that you purchased, how much carbon was associated or carbon equivalent in in bringing that to you at the at the store, right, at the filling station? Well, the problem is that. You have to go back to the wellhead that it came out of and you say, okay, well, even if I put my imaginary fence around this and I know exactly how much uh, CO2 equivalent was involved in producing the oil, well, that oil also produced diesel fuel and produced jet fuel and produced this other thing, right? So you have to start allocating portions of it, how much of that was for the gasoline, right? And then what pipeline did it go through? Did it go to this refinery or that refinery? Because that makes a big difference. And so it's, it quickly becomes very, very complicated to sort of establish these uh, carbon footprints or life cycle. It's a tremendously difficult exercise. We think we can, we can do it, but it rests on a, a whole foundation of statistical and modeling assumptions. And so when I, when I look at most of the, uh, th thank you all for that. When I look at most of the uh, announcements around this, that there seems to be real focus on scope one and two, which seem to be, or the way you guys just explained it, that, that those emissions that come from the upstream production of my oil or gas, whereas scope three is those that come from the consumer's use well, of that all, yes. Yeah, it'd be all the emissions associated with the product. I think the reason you see companies talking about scope one and scope two, because you can define those emissions around the company's activities. Right. And, and that's quite different than the products, right? And so what emissions do we as a company emit directly from our operations and or are we directly influencing, which would be scope two, you're importing some power from the grid. And so that's why you see them coalescing around that. They have I, arguably the most control about those emissions than the products that are sold and used by consumers that's harder for them to deal with from the upstream, right? That's, that's you know, transportation, refining, and vehicle removed from them. Which makes sense from a management perspective that you can control what you can control. And, and you know, once it leaves the pipeline, it's hard to kind of manage all of that from an upstream company perspective. Um, well, you also, you also need to think, and this gets into quickly into to social questions, but yeah, Who's getting the benefit uh, of each part of the process? And frankly, I, you, everybody on the planet is actually pretty much a consumer of, of oil products. So I get the benefit because it takes me to grandma's house, 
right? Mm-hmm. Um, or, or, or I get the benefit, you know, because I get to uh, uh, avoid uh, walking in the cold weather and, and, uh, <laughs> and like today and go somewhere, right? So the benefit is accruing to the consumer. So who should bear the responsibility of that? These are important questions because certainly we've seen consumers starting maybe to change habits, but for the most part, consumers have been generally reluctant to, to do a whole lot to change their consumption habits and their and their carbon footprints sure. dramatically in terms of the oil use and reluctant to pay more absolutely to comp you know to to i guess discourage some of that activity myself that, included that's true but yeah it's so the same thing you know i mean i mean i think a lot of airlines have had these programs to offset your carbon footprint and they're actually pretty modest in terms of the cost but uh, my understanding is not a lot of people take them up on that right, <laughs> right. And, uh, you know, consistently Americans, at least, I can say this now that I live in Canada, but those awful Americans, they have, you know, chosen to get bigger cars versus more efficient cars. Okay. I would, because I don't yeah. want to argue with you, but the Canadian fuel efficiency is not so hot either. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> the bigger the park car, the more bumper stickers that you can put. Well, on a day like this, you may want, you may be incented to idle your car a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, so, and then I guess the, the other piece with this, and we'll, we'll get into to some of this um, as we continue the conversation, but net zero barrels, that, that was some of the other, I think the year began with the net zero barrel press release, maybe from Occidental, and then we're, we're kind of wrapping up with, with a, a net zero, you know, the, the information from Exxon, and net zero barrels so far is that which has mitigated its scope one and two emissions only, correct? Well, it's kind of a tough one. In the case of specific announcements, certainly that's been some, but there are different there are different definitions that are out there around what would net zero be for hydrocarbon? Would it be full life cycle? Would it be a scope one to three? Uh, yeah, I think you're seeing announcements around that what they feel is their direct emissions and bring those down. And you got to remember, like when you look at regulatory reporting or national inventory reporting, which is what governments submit to the United Nations for emissions, it's direct one, it's scope one, it's to direct emissions, right? That's what they're targeting. And that's because they, you can get double counting between them. Mm-hmm. So, right. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, Kevin, talk about this double counting. Double counting is a big deal because if you're reporting scope one and scope two, okay, and it doesn't matter whether you're really a, a, a steel mill or, you know, a convenience store or solar panel manufacturer or oil rig, you are producing emissions there and you import power. Well, if you import power and you have to report those carbon emissions, you know, generating the power, well, does the does the power company report them too? Because technically it's scope one emissions for them. So there's a lot of interesting accounting issues. Well, interesting, I guess, if you're sort of a, a geek like myself, but um, how do you, what's the right way? What's the right answer? And I think that's something that as a society, we're all trying to feel our way toward. And the emissions is being offset through carbon credits elsewhere. Yeah, and that can take the form of a number of things. Kevin knows a lot about this, so I'll defer to him. But, you know, think of it as I know I emitted some stuff that's out in the atmosphere. I can't get it back for the most part. We'll talk about that in a second here when we get to CCUS, but I can't get it back. So what, what do I do? I'm going to remove some carbon from the atmosphere in another place. How does that work, Kevin? Just like you said. <laughs> 
<laughs> it's, you know, you could you could invest in, and you already kind of alluded to things like director capture, where it may be physically hard for you to capture off your facility because you have diffuse sources or something. So you can you literally capture CO two out of the atmosphere, and then you can sequester it in some form. You can buy into sort of offsets, uh, nature based solutions. You know, things like. Uh, different agriculture practices or planting trees or protecting forests, those sorts of things as well. I think what we're seeing, Hill, is um, in the last 24, 36 months, a rapid acceleration of establishing establishment of markets around carbon, not just in terms of, I think the conversation predating this was about governments setting up markets. Mm-hmm. I think what we're seeing now is financial institutions and companies seeking ways to address their emissions, and that requires market-based solutions. So valuation of avoided emissions or the pricing of emissions directly and indirectly, even including through cost of capital access and those sorts of things and it seems like the, the largest upstream companies or integrated super majors are, are really driving this activity. I would say we see action across you know a broad set, um, but certainly they they are moving pretty aggressively and pretty visibly. Um, I think when you think about uh, the upstream specifically and the integrate the global majors are not just upstream; they're integrated, so they've got multiple mm-hmm. levers available to them. But you see, the first thing companies focus on is okay, okay let's fix my assets. Let's go and optimize and see what I can get out of them. And they, the reason they go there first is because they, they, they're continuing to produce them. And let's be frank, 2021, towards the end of it, was pretty good in terms of prices for, for hydrocarbons across the board. So how do I optimize and reduce emissions on my facilities? And generally, this coincides very well with cost. And so, you know, they, you know, a lot of it is about burning fuels. Well, let's burn those fuels and use them more efficiently. That'll reduce my overall intensity and potentially my absolute emissions, depending on how far I can take that. And it'll make my product more resilient because my costs are coming down at the same time. So there's a lot of synergies to that. Then the companies can move further on and they look at more strategic changes. You know, do where do I drill next? They drill in, you know, higher, lower intensity assets than, than things that are on the peripheral. Uh, then I can also look at the investment in incremental uh, energy production. You see European uh, companies looking at renewables as an opportunity to dilute their portfolio uh, against the hydrocarbons they have in them. But you also see them looking at building better platforms or electrifying mm-hmm. drilling rigs, uh, all that kind of activity. So it's a pretty broad brace swath. But generally, I think that the key thing we see is first you look at fixing your assets and, uh, and that's what they're doing. And then you see them move out. And I think that's where you see greater divergence strategies. Right. And has yeah. this become really a license to operate for, for a lot of these companies? Yeah, I, I, it's it's looking that way. I think I, I frame it into this acceptance or acceptance or rejection. I think that was a theme I saw towards the end of the year is this oil and gas sector as a whole saying, look, we want to contribute to decarbonization. We want to participate. But other actors saying, you know, we don't we don't want you to. Right. And I frankly, from where I sit, I find that concerning because I think oil and gas companies have a tremendous amount of solutions available to them to, to, that they can bring to bear. And also the reality is that the world remains very much hydrocarbon powered. And so any efforts to reduce the intensity of that activity is a net benefit to the world as it moves into transition. So oil and gas very much is, has to be part of the transition in my mind. Otherwise, we're going to stumble and trip and fall as we try to, to reduce emissions. I'll let Raul jump in. I think he wanted to jump in a minute ago. Yeah, just just to, to build on a couple of things. Um, uh, you're right. People are have gotten serious. I think in the long run that it's going to be difficult because of 
consumer behavior and affordability. And while those are showing some very positive trends for electric vehicles or uh, you know renewable energy, the fact remains, yeah, more than eighty percent of the of the world is powered by by fossil fuels, and that's important just because that means we have to rebuild to displace that. You have to re build that after replace that right as well as build enough for the increased demand that you know we're, we're seeing all the time and over 20 30 years that that really adds up uh, getting back to the upstream the upstream uh, one thing i would say is that as kevin points out people are engaged in a whole whole number of ventures and one of the things i would point out is that in this first stage of focus on my scope one emissions methane in particular has really come to the fore and methane is a bit of a winner for the industry i feel co2 is Kind of inherent in a in a in a hydrocarbon as a burned fuel, okay, right? And and there's no way right now to get the value from a fuel except to use it, you know, turn chemical energy into uh, heat or locomotion. But methane is a place, and methane's a big problem. It's a critical greenhouse gas because it is not very long lasting in the atmosphere like carbon dioxide is but it is very potent while it is around. And so near-term changes, I think you're going to see people focused on methane reduction. And honestly, it's something that we can make a lot of progress on, I think, uh, relatively quickly. It's, it's not going to be painless. It's, it's, so are there cases where you actually save money? Well, yeah, because you obviously you're, you're selling gas and you're leaking gas. You, know, you stop a leak and, and you can sell it, okay? It partially offsets. But the fact is there's a lot of equipment that releases natural gas by design, and that will need to be replaced with zero bleed valves, for example, right? Pneumatic uh, actuators that work on air. So there's a whole bunch of things that need to be done, but that is something that can be done. I think the solutions are off the shelf or almost off the shelf, uh, and we can get down to something very efficient relatively quickly compared to, to CO2, which I do think is a bigger problem. And where on the on the methane side is it all leakage that that's the problem? No, there's there's a couple of things I, I would say uh, in terms of methane. A lot of it is what we call fugitives. So fugitive methane is exactly what you think. It's escaped and we don't know where it is. We're trying to track it down, right? And that's one thing. And honestly, here's something that, that may be a surprise to people: is nobody knows how big that problem is. Okay, you can clearly see from satellite data some what are called super emitters, and they're gigantic. But if you look at the press releases, they keep going back to the same three or four. They're so gigantic that you can't ignore them. Mm -hmm. But there may be a lot. I think it's a, a pretty big problem. Again, solvable. We're, we're getting better technology to sense it and figure out. So fugitives are one, one part. The next one is venting. So venting happens when people intentionally release methane to the atmosphere, often as a result of equipment that was designed that way before people kind of clued in that this might not be a good idea for the atmosphere. And then the, the third one would be something like maybe um, uh, incomplete combustion or, or other kinds of problems uh, where there, there's methane or carbon monoxide that, uh, that will get released. So anyway, I think those are your big three. Uh, and, you know, unfortunately, the way that it works is generally the people that we all see in the headlines, right? The the major oil companies and even the mm -hmm. the first class, uh, you know, uh, national oil companies, they generally have less of a problem. They tend to care more. Their equipment team tends to be better maintained. Mm -hmm. Yeah, all that kind of stuff, right? And they have means. And you know, uh, I, I think we'll find a big part of the problem is in uh, in old wells and in small operators who 
frankly may have been on the rocks for for years due to due to low prices and so it's difficult to figure out how we're going to get that, that cleaned up and this methane it is a big problem and is part of the scope one and two buckets yes correct? that's right so, yeah so if we're looking at scope one two and three in, in the grand scheme of things let's say we solve all the one and two emission problem today yeah how are we 20% of the way towards solving all of scope one, two, and three, or, or are we 50% of the way that, that if we kind of put it on a curve? Yeah. How, how much work is done once we get scope one and two managed? This goes to you know, like on a product lifecycle basis where you'd measure right. the emissions associated with everything from extraction to end use. The, you know, the, the end use is somewhere between 88 to 85%, maybe even higher, depending on the specific hydrocarbon you're looking at. So we're really slicing at the thin end of the wedge, right? And so what, you know, what Raul said is earlier is a lot of this comes down to consumer de demand for the products and how the products are used. And I think that's why you see proliferation of uh, low carbon fuel standards. You know, you think about it, reducing that calorie count on the can. So that's what they're doing. They're looking at ways to improve the fuels we're using, uh, for, you know, the combustion of fuels we're using, but also advance other forms of energy for transport and other uses as well. So, yeah, yeah your, your challenge is your consumer use. It's the things you and I do that dominate the emission profile of hydrocarbons. Okay. Which we're, I mean, we're going to save that for another <laughs> conversation yeah. because I guess compare our very complicated very quickly. Um, so as we're again, as we're thinking about the upstream, you know, you guys have introduced some of the portfolio management and intensity concerns, um, or, or I guess focuses. I guess first at kind of a competition level, you're seeing the super majors really kind of drive a, a lot of this, at least visibly. And it seems to be all the you know investor-owned super majors. What what are we seeing from from the upstream sector in in the you know national oil companies or some of the more independent operators? Are they thinking about this and and not saying anything yet? Or are they doing things and not saying it? Or are they saying it and I'm just missing it? I think we're seeing movement. I think part of it is capacity to respond. You know, I think the bigger companies are, are are positioned to respond in the sense they have that deeper capacity to get in front of it. And they probably de dealt with some of these issues longer, depending on where they've been active in the world. I think that's true. I think we are seeing NOCs uh, position themselves. They're looking at decarbonization. We have a number of at very active companies in the Middle East talking about net zero as well and making commitments as well. So it's, I don't think it's it's as easy as segmenting the sector up by simple buckets. I do like this kind of goes to, and I don't want to change the topic too much, to what we generally see in the upstream. You know, a lot of the conversation around emissions has been these very clear cut ranks, you know, top 10 countries, and these are the bad actors and these are the good actors. But when you actually get into upstream emissions, it's, it's all about distribution curves. And those curves are pretty wild. And it, and it all comes back to the same, same kind of logic that originally started in upstream. It drives everything. It's all about the rocks. Mm -hmm. Right. And so you see incredible variation. I think that's true. What we see in terms of response, we're seeing variation in strategy. But I think we are seeing a permeation in first the realization of the degree at which the companies need to respond. And we're seeing some companies move stronger and choose strategies that are different than others. I think the message is getting through uh, and it's about, you know, the ability to respond. Like I think Raul said it earlier, there's some companies that have been struggling and they're going to be slower to respond because they have more immediate needs to deal with in terms of solvency and those sorts of things. But as they they realize that the market's asking to compete on carbon, I think one thing that was clear this year to me was that the upstream sector is positioning to compete on carbon and they're going to compete. Go ahead, Raul. Yeah, so I think you know, exactly. 
what Kevin is saying is important. And, and what I see is a couple of things. Number one, where are companies? So companies are have spent 2021, for the most part, making promises, okay? Pledges, long-term pledges. But that's not the only thing they're doing. They're actually doing doing quite a bit. Everybody has put out, everybody now has a sustainability team. Those teams are pretty well uh, uh, staffed. They're, they're pretty funded. The problem is right now, number one, nobody actually knows exactly how much what their emissions footprint is. Right. And by the way, for CO2, it's a little bit easier because you can track fuels. Okay. I can track how much diesel was burned. I know the exact number of gallons because I had to pay for it. And I know these other things that the methane is much trickier, particularly the fuging inventages, which, which may not be measured at all. So the other thing is when you read the glossy brochure from, from a company's and, and frankly, I don't care who it is. Okay. Whether it's oil and gas or other industries, most people are estimating their emissions and sometimes that's perfect okay like i say if it's if it's you know fuel that you burn you burn this much coal you know exactly how much to the decimal point how much that was but the deal is people at least in the oil and gas business are using what's called factor emissions estimates so if you say well here's a well pad okay in the perm you know here's an offshore platform in uh, angola i am going to look at that and I'm going to look at all the equipment on that thing and say, well, geez, this compressor, I looked in the manual and it says it uses this much per hour and releases this much methane and this much CO2. And I'm going to put that because I multiply by 365 days, uh, take off 10%. And, and that's about what I did. Now, is that compressor actually released that much? Don't know. So there's a the one thing that's not getting a lot of play, but is getting a lot of I think movement and investment is companies are moving rapidly toward moving away from estimating these things to being able to measure them. So I'm using uh, satellites are, uh, in my mind, very difficult for any kind of attribution purposes. So in other words, it's great if you want to know the you know Midland County and the Permian, what the methane is coming off of that in the last six months. It is not good if you need to fix out which well is busted to go mm -hmm. and fix it. So I need sensors, I need drones, I need flyovers, I need sophisticated math so I can go get it. So I'd say the first thing is everybody's moving from pledges. Second thing is everybody's moving slowly toward measurement okay, and trying to get better and better about what the actual footprint is. And then the third thing people are doing is they are taking action on the no-brainers. I go with an optical gas imaging camera and I, I go to every well site I have, look at it, find the one that has the leaks and, and do that. We know one company that looked at 5,000 sites and they had a leak rate of about 9%, which is not bad, but not good. Okay, not great. And But the point is they fixed them. That's great. So people are doing a lot of things like that, but it's also difficult to know exactly, you know, whether that's impacting uh, a lot or a little. But, you know, to get back, if I can cut you off for a second before you ask me another question, getting back to Kevin's point about distributions, he's absolutely right. So you have all sorts of wells. You know, I think of them kind of like people or, or shoe sizes, right? If you had a shoe company, you're never going to make just size nine shoe because even though the average is size nine, it doesn't do you any good to really understand uh, uh, how things work in the real world. And so you got wells that are, we believe, you know, old wells, which may only be two barrels a day or eight barrels mm -hmm. a day or three MCF a day. And um, 
they are using a ton of electricity, they may have a water cut of 94%. So for every six barrels, of uh, 100 barrels that come out, 94 of water that have to get trucked somewhere or have to get re-injected, a few other things. Those are very high intensity barrels. And so, you know, if you're comparing, you can't just go to the Permian or you can't just go to the Eagle for the Bakken and say, oh, here's the profile of that thing. You really need to take it apart and start looking at a very granular level. And how, so, so the, the other thing that we're kind of seeing related to this is emission ten, intensity versus absolute emissions. And, and I think back on, this is kind of a strange example here, but when I was in college, my, my freshman year in college, I ate a lot of ramen noodles. And, and my sophomore year, I continued to eat a lot of ramen noodles and the saturated fat content shrunk by 50% year over year because that little package of ramen noodles went from one serving size to two serving sizes. The, the, the serving size didn't change, right? They just changed the math. Yeah. As we're looking, there seems to be a lot of conversation around emission intensity, which would be like that ramen example, right? That, that I could continue to grow my production and my absolute emissions increase, but my, inten- my intensity per barrel has gone down. It is, are, are we seeing work done on both fronts? Yeah, I think... Yeah, it's true, right? So your intensity is, the, is a per unit of output measurement, right? So you, you, as you can generally, in a lot of these facilities, when they optimize, particularly large kind of industrial processing, you think about the King oil sands or offshore facilities, if you optimize your output, you're going to increase your absolute emissions, but your intensity is going to fall, right? You can just think about it. I'm burning all, I've got all the lights on in my house. If I push more more people in the house, it, it doesn't mean I'm necessarily going to create more emissions, but I'm going to get more things out the door, so my intensity will fall. But I, I don't think it's the case that one, you know, when you think about metrics of performance, intensity is, is desirable if we're thinking about competing between, you know, facilities or companies. And the reason it's important is because it normalizes for scale. Mm-hmm. So if you just focus on absolute, if I'm just larger than you, you're going to punish me. But maybe I'm larger than you, but I produce at twice the efficiency of you, right? And so that's why intensity becomes so important is the ability to normalize for that scale. That doesn't mean that absolute emissions is not the target here ultimately, right? But in the interim, we're continuing to use, you know, the world remains hydrocarbon powered. And so in that interim period, as we can move through the transition, intensity is a very important metric to ensure we're making sure that the most efficient products are being used rather than the ones that just have the biggest facility. And, and what are we seeing role from kind of the the executive incentive structure? And I, and I know I was looking at a uh, you know executive compensation report last week, and yes. there was you know an executive who was rewarded on intensity, and, and that would influence one set of behaviors versus another set of behaviors. And are we seeing an investor preference in any of these companies? Um, and and is it showing up in the way that a lot of other executive incentives have shown up? I think that at this stage of the game, the, there's a notion that intensity is the way to go. Okay. Uh, otherwise, you start making decisions which may not be, you know, um, uh, w- which go toward volumetric reductions and getting smaller. Mm-hmm. And by the way, when you get smaller, of course, you have fewer uh, barrels to amortize your costs. So your cost goes up because your revenue is going down and your cost may not be changing. It's the opposite of diluting your 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 cost by, by raising your production, right? So I think... In terms of executive compensation, 
a lot of people are putting in uh, intensity measures, which is one reason they're starting to matter to companies and companies are trying to measure them. There's going to be a lot of problems here in the future is when you get all your sensors on it and it turns out that you were higher or lower than your uh, your previous estimate. Do you fix that or do you force people to take the penalty or the or the reward of a uh, of the new better metric? But that's something that's going to evolve. We'll solve those problems over time. Yeah, executives are compensated like this. I think intensity is the way to go. Nobody really wants to incentivize on absolute emissions for the reasons Kevin just said. Hey, why would I want to make my company smaller, right? Mm-hmm. You're, are you not going to do a merger, which may be fantastic and better for the environment because you're you're incentivized on absolute emissions? So I think we're 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 sticking with that for probably a long time. So where? We're talking now on December 17th and 21. What are we expecting in the near term and the long term? I mean, the long uh, These press releases are 2030, 2050 targets. Yeah. And you know, a lot of these companies are going to be led by other individuals, maybe even have a whole new different name, right? You know, I guess let's put 2030, 2050 to, to the side for a minute and we can you know, mm-hmm. cover that in a few years. 2022, what, what are we thinking uh, what we're going to see from, from the upstream specifically on emissions? I personally think you're going to see a very strong focus on on methane as the primary vehicle to achieve the medium term targets. And and the good news is there's a lot of still a lot of low hanging fruit here. You know, replacing an actuator is not a big deal and and makes a big difference from your greenhouse gas. Um, I think it's going to get a lot harder. It's going to take significantly more money once you have to start abating more of your carbon and, and more of your power. Uh, your electric power that you may be buying or generating yourself. That's when the probably the big dollars and the hard choices uh, will come in. But uh, at least the first tranche of methane for the next several years, I think at Glasgow, they they committed to 30% by 2030. Now that's a global number from all industries. Mm -hmm. But honestly, I think the um, oil and gas industry should be able to hit that pretty easily and, and should be able to do more. And do you agree with that, Kevin? I agree that the focus is laser. They're laser focused. We're globally on methane. I think that's very true. But the opportunities for methane are going to vary by resource. Um, you know, methane is more material in certain resources than other resources. Um, and so I think it's just important for people to, when they look at look at different resources to understand the composition that drives the emissions are going to be violently different. So globally, methane, you know, is you know twenty percent of emissions, give or take. But on an individual asset, it can dominate. And in other assets, it can be not particularly material based on the practices or what they're actually extracting as well. For 2022, when I think about 2021, the last couple of years, you know, realization, uh, setting ambition. I'd expect to see more ambition, maybe increasing ambition looking into 2022. But I also start to think, you know, a lot of the focus was on how do I decarbonize and become more efficient, you know, save save money and reduce emissions the same. I think what I expect to see in 2022 is moving from promises to more action. And I think the companies will begin to deliver and lay out platforms. And I think we started to see that towards the end of this year. You know, we saw more granularity around the creation of carbon capture hubs um, in the United States and in other countries. I think that'll continue to advance and you'll get more clarity uh, and and more uh, concrete things you can point to coming forward. And are we going to see more more work within one's portfolio or the other thing that we've seen a lot of this year is the selling of assets to private investors who may not have the same concerns that the super major that the selling major had or which doesn't necessarily help us on you know the, the global emissions perspective yeah um, i think you 
Yeah, divestment is not decarbonization, right? Um, it doesn't really solve the underlying problem um, in that sense. I think certainly shifting portfolios is one way for a company to address the risks associated with the carbon intensity of their overall uh, profile. Um, I wouldn't rule out seeing additional movements in M&A around that as well um, in 2022. Uh, but I do think we will see, you know, I think part of the challenge has been transparency on getting a comparative scale to understand the relative intensities out there. Like Raul kind of talked about, and I kind of mentioned, we see incredible variation in emissions when you get down to the actual asset and move away from kind of weighted averages. And I think that kind of transparency is going to be required to really start making, you know, broader based choices on portfolios. If you're going to start moving your assets around, like what, what are you doing? I think within a lot of the big companies out there, they have a lot of, they can high grade amongst them and they have a good idea what they have, but longer term to maintain that supply, you might see, you could see more movement, but it, it requires better understanding of that upstream footprint and that variation exists. And there's a lot of complexity here. It'll, you know, generally speaking, but not always true, is the heavier barrel will have a generally have a higher carbon intensity, but it also generates and produces a slightly different yield of product than a light barrel. And so meeting the demand of different segments of the economy through time is not as clear cut as or just singularly related to emissions as well. And this this is a broader issue, too. We can't keep our eye off the ball. There are a broader set of environmental considerations than just greenhouse gases, although they're of critical importance. There's things like water use and land use and indigenous impacts that also have to be taken into consideration when we look at any form of industrial development. Okay. So and just, just to wrap it up, and where, where, where would you all kind of put us in, in the upstream kind of approach to emissions? Are we at, are we still at day zero or, or um, you know, are, are we in the, I guess the, the, the baseball analogy of, are we in the first inning, the middle innings or the things of how we're dealing with all this? That's tough. I'm, I'm a second inning person. Second yeah. inning. Yeah. I'd put it early innings. I think we're starting to see the establishment of how companies intend to compete on greenhouse gas emissions. And I think it's moving beyond that to the, the, you know, we've laid out, they're laying out strategies, they're building their teams. And now it's, you know, now it's going to get serious, I think. Just one point I'd make as a final remark here that I think is important in our initial foray into emissions data has, has told us is I mentioned before that barrels also amortize cost. And one of the things that Kevin also noted was, you know, they're, Big distribution is all about the rock. And so when we looked in North America, for example, one thing we noticed is that because of a very simple principle uh, around rock productivity, the winners on economics tend to be the winners on emissions as well. Okay. And for the very simple reason of if you drill and complete and produce a well, you're going to emit a certain amount of, of CO2 equivalent. And frankly, the only difference between a well here and a well 20 miles away uh, in, in terms of your, your carbon dioxide emissions or equivalent emissions are going to be about the same. But the amount of productivity you get can be a factor of, you know, six, seven, eight to one. Right. And so what happens is the most productive areas, by definition, tend to have the lowest emissions within any given asset type. Right. That's really important because what it tells you is that. A lot of the winners historically and a lot of the criteria that go with economics and, and profitability tend to be aligned 
with lower emissions, not no emissions, right? Because that implies a different fuel, but tend to be aligned. And so I think um, it's that's a good thing because I think it means that we're not fighting economics all the time, okay, in our drive toward lower emissions world. Does any of that discourage onshore versus offshore? Or is it all economics? Um, it, it's all economics. The only thing is onshore is a, it's, it's a different beast, uh, mostly because of the time frame. And because of that time frame, I think the uncertainty around emissions in the longer term is driving people actually to onshore. Because I'm going to put in $8 million or $800 million of a drill, 800 wells, but I'm going to put in that and literally I'm going to get back my investment or not, I'll know for sure within three, four years. That's it. So if you think, eh, man, this is a problem in 2030, 2035 is a problem. I don't want to go take some, you know, acreage in a frontier area that might be awesome, but it's not going to have a dime of revenue until 2035. Or I can just continue to drill these short cycle wells in, in the Eagleford or the Bakken. I know what I'm doing. And I think it, 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 this risk factor, the uncertainty factor, and uncertainty around carbon cost is pushing people to look at North American onshore and say, this is a safer place for me to put my money now. In the short cycle. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Well, there's a, a lot to discuss here. And if we're in the second inning, uh, I look forward to talking more about it in, in the third inning or the fourth inning. Sorry for the baseball reference, Kevin. I'm, <laughs> I guess I could have used hockey or curling. Uh, yeah, it seemed more poignant looking out my window right now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, thank you both, and, and uh, I wish you a, a warmer weekend uh, than perhaps you're dealing with now. All right. Thank you. Thanks, Bye. Bye. Cheers. Bye. To read additional insights from our team of experts, visit our blog at www.ihsmarket.com slash energy blog. You can also find our experts on social media by searching for IHS Market Energy on either Twitter or LinkedIn. Have a topic idea or want to send us feedback? Email our podcast team at energysense at ihsmarket.com. This podcast contains information and insights copyrighted by IHS Market. To learn more about IHS Market Energy solutions, visit ihsmarket.com slash energy. That's ihsmarkit.com forward slash energy.